again from the beautiful and palatial UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. I am Dave Mitchell. Glad to have you along on this Thursday evening as we count down the weeks to the NFL Draft, which is going to be happening on May 8th, and we're going to be talking about that on tonight's show. You can contact us via the social media here at UltimateSportsTalk.com simply by sending us an email or a tweet to OHBBCoHost. That's at OHBBCoHost. Or you can send us an email to dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com. Boy, a lot going on this week. First of all, the NBA season has come to a close. The NHL playoffs are getting underway. There's a lot going on in professional football with the draft coming up. And there's some college football news. But first... Well, on October 31st, everything got started for the NBA basketball season. And finally, last night, the season has come to a close. A season in which, towards the end of the year, nobody in the NBA really wanted to win a basketball game. Every single season that the NBA has been in existence since the lottery has come into effect, basketball teams have been trying to lose towards the end of the year to better their chances at getting the number one draft pick. This year, it was the Milwaukee Bucks and the Philadelphia 76ers. For crying out loud, Philadelphia even tied the Cavaliers' record for most consecutive losses in a single season. But now it seems like everything in the NBA has switched. Not only do you have teams that are trying to lose to better their position in the draft, But now you've got teams that are in the playoffs trying to lose to better their position in the playoffs, which is exactly what happened this week. First of all, you had the Miami Heat. The Miami Heat decided to rest Chris Bosh and LeBron James on Monday night, basically forfeiting their chance to take the top seed in the Eastern Conference. Home court advantage throughout the entire playoff series in the Eastern Conference. And remember, it was because Miami had the home court advantage last year against the San Antonio Spurs that they won the NBA championship. Had the final two games been in San Antonio last year, no way does Miami win the NBA title a year ago. But because they had the home court advantage, they did accomplish that. And then last night, the Brooklyn Nets who do not want to play Miami in the second round of the playoffs. They don't even want to play Chicago in the first round of the playoffs. What happened? They did not play any of their five starters in the game against the Cavaliers last night. And the Cavaliers ended up winning the ball game easily, 114-85. to Matter of fact, after the game, Mike Brown tried to apologize for the Brooklyn Nets, saying, that Jason Collins had more years of playoff experience than any of the Cavaliers on the floor toward the end of the game last night. Still in all, there is absolutely no excuse for this. The NBA 
has to step in and do something to take care of the problems that they have with teams right now that are losing on purpose. A year ago, when David Stern was the commissioner, Greg Popovich of the San Antonio Spurs had the audacity to rest Tim Duncan, Manu Ginobili, and Tony Parker in a game that was nationally televised against the Miami Heat because it was the second night of a back-to-back and the fourth game in five days that the Spurs had played. And David Stern fined the San Antonio organization and fined Greg Popovich for doing that. Yet, is anything being done to Miami for sitting out LeBron James and Chris Bosh in a game in April that has the playoffs at stake? Is he doing anything to Brooklyn for sitting the five starters out of the game against the Cavaliers last night? No. Now, granted, David Stern is no longer the commissioner. I understand that. But the NBA has really become a silly regular season league. When you look at this exhibition season prior to the regular season, what do you see? You see things such as the NFL that people complain about, the exhibition season. What do you call that? The exhibition season. What does the NBA now call the regular season? The exhibition season part due. And then you move into the playoffs, which is what Charles Barkley says is the real season anyway, where the players amp it up another 50%. This has certainly become a circus in the NBA. And like I said, the commissioner and the owners have to do something about this because it just cannot continue. Now, as far as the Cleveland Cavaliers are concerned, as I said, they won their final game last night, 114-85, to over the Brooklyn Nets. It was a disappointing year for the Cavs. They were expected to make the playoffs. Dan Gilbert, the owner, promised they would make the playoffs. Guess what? They're not in the playoffs. They finished up with a record of 33-49, and 16 games under 500. That was good enough for third in their division, but it was 10th in the Eastern Conference, and only the top eight teams go to the playoffs. So now we enter into the offseason for the Cavaliers. At best, I should say at worst, the Cavaliers will have the ninth pick in the draft this year, unless they are able to have their name drawn out of the hat to get one of the top three spots in the college basketball draft. But there are a lot of decisions that this team has to make. First of all, they have to hire a GM. Now, secondly, when they do hire the GM, will the coach continue to be Mike Brown? Now, Mike Brown's return could be predicated on the fact that he has four years left on a five-year contract, paying him $4 million a year. In other words, there are, I should say, $5 million a year. In other words, there are $20 million left owed to Mike Brown on the contract. Now, that is a big pill for Dan Gilbert to swallow if he wants to let Mike Brown go. So what do you decide to do with Mike Brown? Well, just look at what he has done. He took a team full of youth and decided that he wanted these kids to play defense. Not going to happen. 
These kids, all they wanted to do was get the ball out and run. Mike Brown, offense has never been the name of the game with him. As a matter of fact, the only O he can spell is in Brown. And all he stresses is defense. I have never seen a basketball team, folks, win 2 nothing. You have to score. You have to be able to put the basketball through the basket in order to win a basketball game. Yes, defense is important, but it goes hand-in-hand with the offense. This basketball team was at its best when it was moving, passing, and running and making baskets off turnovers that the defense triggered. But Mike Brown's philosophy on offense is not to run. It's to walk the basketball up the floor. It's to let your superstar, i.e. Kyrie Irving, do what he does best. Dribble, 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 shoot. I used to say that to my kids when they were growing up. Dribble, 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 shoot. Evidently, so did Kyrie Irving's dad, because that is all Kyrie Irving knows how to do. He's got to learn how to play the point guard position at the NBA level. And when he played it the way he was supposed to, this Cavalier team was tough to beat. They've got a good basis for players. I don't agree with a lot of people that say this Cavalier team is devoid of talent, that they've got to blow up the entire thing. I don't think this Cavalier team is that bad, but they've got to make some moves. And the first move that they need to make is what to do with Mike Brown. And after last night's game, I was convinced more than ever that Mike Brown should be fired as coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers, simply because of what he said after the year. He actually was pleased with this season. I'm proud of the guys. I'm proud of the season. People look at uh, what have you done for me lately. And these guys have been pretty good for the past two to three months, not just the two, not just two to three weeks or two to three days, but they've been good for the past couple of months, two-plus months, and you know, they've played better basketball. And so, I, I mean, I, I give them credit for it. I give them credit for trying to stick with it, trying to get better, uh, trying to go out there and prove to themselves that they can win uh, in this league consistently. And... And uh, so I look at it more as a positive uh, than anything else. I mean, Dan's, hey, I said before, I'm thankful for Dan for the opportunity he's given me and my family. Um, I mean, I wouldn't be sitting in the seat without him. And, I mean, it's, it's his team. He, whatever decision he makes with, with, with anything, you know, I'm, I'm going to support him. This is a twofold conversation to have about Mike Brown. How can you be proud of this season when you finish 33 and 49? You're expected to make the playoffs, and you don't make the playoffs. And this team did not gel. He could not get it to form. He was not the motivator that he needed to be for this team to get better during the season. That's my problem with Mike Brown. Now, Dan Gilbert, as I said, he's got the dilemma. I don't think he ever should have brought Mike Brown back. Mike Brown was more of a fit for the Brooklyn Nets than he was for the Cleveland Cavaliers. He was never a fit for the Los Angeles Lakers. That was a team that was never going to listen to him. After all, Mike Brown stands on the sideline looking confused and chewing on his snuff and spitting it into a cup. That does not go over well 
with the wealthy where-to-bees out in Los Angeles that pay over $5,000 for front court seat tickets like Jack Nicholson does for every game. Mike Brown is just not the coach for the Cleveland Cavaliers. So what does that mean? Where do you go for a coach? There are a lot of different rumors out there. I don't know how in the world you can actually go over some of the rumors and when the existing coach is still there. Matter of fact, Dan Gilbert is out of town until next week, so no decision on Mike Brown is expected to be announced until next week. I would think if they're going to fire him, they would probably just do it quickly, but the longer this goes on, the more likely they are to keep Brown as the head coach. But there are a lot of names swirling around. Of course, the biggest one is George Carl. I've also heard some people, especially out of ESPN Radio out of Cleveland, bring up the fact that the Cavaliers should hire Isaiah Thomas as head of basketball operations. Sure, I want Zeke Thomas running my organization. He just single-handedly practically destroyed the New York Knicks and put them behind the eight ball for the last ten years. And then there's Chris Jett, who's an assistant with the Sacramento Kings. Used to be an assistant with the Ohio State. Used to play for the Ohio State University. And he's given credit for being the one, the architect, that taught LeBron James how to shoot the ball better. I'm going to bring up a name that I think would be an outstanding fit for the Cleveland Cavaliers should they decide to get rid of Mike Brown, which I'm advocating right now. I think Mike Brown should be fired. I think Dan Gilbert should bite the bullet, swallow the contract, and bring in a new coach. And my pick for the coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers would be Mark Price. Now, that may seem silly at first, but Mark Price... Since the 97-98 season, has coached high school basketball, college basketball, and he's been a special consultant and an assistant coach at the NBA level and the developmental league. He's been an assistant to Bobby Kremens at Georgia Tech. He did that during the 99-2000 and 2000 season. After Kremens retired from coaching at Georgia Tech, Price then went on the following year to be the head coach at Whitefield Academy in Atlanta for the 2000-2001 season, leading the team to a 27-5 and record and the final eight teams in the state Class A tournament, which was a 20-win improvement over the prior season and a 27-win improvement two seasons before Price arrived. Now, NBA player Josh Smith, who's now on Detroit, also played at Whitefield Academy the same season Price was the coach. In 2003... Price was a consultant for the NBA's Denver Nuggets. He then became a television analyst and color commentator for the Cavaliers and the Atlanta Hawks. In March of 2006, Price was named the inaugural head coach of the Australian NBL's South Dragons, which was a new franchise. But then he was fired after the team stumbled to an 0-5 start and the coaching job was later taken over by player Shane Heal in a controversial decision made by majority owner Mark Cowan. Heal was fired the following year after the Dragons finished last in the NBL for the 2007-2008 season. Price then became the shooting consultant 
for the Memphis Grizzlies for the 2007-2008 season. And he was named the shooting coach for the Atlanta Hawks for the 2008-2009 and 2009-2010 seasons. He helped the Hawks improve their offensive output in their first return to the Eastern Conference semifinals in nearly 10 years during the 2009 NBA playoffs. And Price is credited with helping Boston Celtics point guard Rajon Rondo improve his jump shot. Rondo's scoring was a key factor in the Celtics reaching the 2010 NBA Finals, where they pushed the L.A. Lakers to the full seven-game series. And for the 2010-2011 season, Price joined the Golden State Warriors as an assistant coach with the primary task of improving the Warriors' shooting and free-throw percentage. Then the following year, he was hired as player developmental coach for the Orlando Magic, and in July of 2012, Price served as head coach of the Orlando Magic Summer League team. And in 2013, on July 1st, Price was hired as an assistant coach by the Charlotte Bobcats, joining the staff of head coach Steve Clifford and associate head coach Pat Ewing for this past season. And where are the Charlotte Bobcats now? In the NBA playoffs. I submit that Mark Price should be a coach that Dan Gilbert Go take a look at. I haven't heard anybody else bring up his name, but he brings instant credibility to the coaching spot for the Cavaliers because his name is up in the rafters. He is a Cleveland Cavalier Hall of Famer. As you recall, he played with Brad Doherty, Larry Nance, Hot Rod Williams, Ron Harper, Danny Ferry. He played with all of them, and he was the point guard. And if you look at the game and the talents that Kyrie Irving have and compare them to what Mark Price used to do, Mark Price was a shooting point guard. Kyrie Irving is a shooting point guard. Mark Price was the stud of the Georgia Tech team in college. Kyrie Irving was the stud of the Duke team through the tournament two years ago. They are almost the same type of player. And I think Mark Price could teach Kyrie Irving how to play the position the way that he did. Because Mark Price would bring in that pick-and-roll offense. And with Steve Hawes, they could run that pick-and-roll, Tristan Thompson, Anderson Vrejao. He could teach Kyrie when to dish and when to shoot. That would be a big improvement. The free-throw shooting for the Cavaliers, which has been a bugaboo over the past few years, would improve. I think Mark Price also would bring people to Quicken Loans Arena because they would want to see one of their own be successful as head coach. Now, once you've got the coaching situation set and Mark Price would be your new coach, what do you do with Kyrie Irving and Dion Waiters? It's well known that they really don't like each other. It was discovered early in the year that that was the case. Dion Waiters wanted traded. He stormed out of a team meeting. He got into a fight with another teammate. But then it was really Josh Gordon of the Cleveland Browns that solidified the problems between Dion and Kyrie. So do you try to go through another season with those two? Can they play together? 
I've seen Kyrie take stupid shots. I've seen Dion take stupid shots. I've seen Kyrie make mistakes. I've seen Dion make mistakes. I think these are things that they are going to have to work through. And I hate to give up on either one of them this early in their career. Certainly Kyrie Irving could bring you a first-round pick or two. Maybe even a lottery pick this year, depending upon who you would deal with. But can you get the same caliber point guard back in the return out of the draft simply by sending Kyrie Irving someplace else? And do you want to take a chance on Kyrie Irving being a superstar? My whole game plan with Kyrie Irving would be this. Sit him down this summer and offer him the max contract that you can a rookie. A five-year deal. Maximum amount of money. Tell him, let's sign it now. Even though you've got one year left on your existing contract, let's sign it now. Tie you up for the next six years. And then we'll move forward. You're going to be the face of our franchise. But if he balks at signing that contract, then I move him. I don't take any time to even think about it. I call up anybody that would be interested, and I try to make a deal for him. But I put the ball in Kyrie Irving's court. I think that's what you need to do with him. Now, once you get Kyrie's contract set up, you have to remember the next year, Tristan Thompson and Deion Waiters are going to come up for the same situation. Do you have enough money to sign those two? Can you fit them under the cap? Especially if you want to sign Steve Hawes. Now, Hawes, I thought, was an outstanding acquisition by the Cavaliers around the trading deadline. He came in from a lowly Philadelphia team, and he was re-energized when he put on that Cavalier uniform. He's a 7-1, 250-pound center that can go down low, can go outside and shoot the three-pointer, and can handle the basketball. He would be perfect in the pick-and-roll offense that Mark Price would bring to the Cavaliers to run with Kyrie Irving. That could be a deadly combo. But he's a free agent, and he's an unrestricted free agent. He averaged 14 points and 8 rebounds with the Cavs while playing with them in the second half of the season. I think he is a key ingredient to this team. I think you need to keep him on this team. But what do you do with Lou Aldang? I don't think you keep Lou Aldang. You let him go. And I think the best place that Lou Aldang could end up would be in San Antonio, actually, with the Spurs, and that would be for next year. But he seems to fit the Spurs' bill of a player that they want. So I keep Steve Hawes, I let Deng go. Then you've got two players this year that were top draft picks a year ago under Chris Grant. But were they the right picks? First of all, you've got Anthony Bennett. Anthony Bennett was the number one pick, a surprise, right off the bat by the Cavaliers out of Nevada, Las Vegas. He was a freshman, but he was coming off of shoulder surgery. So it made this season almost impossible for him to succeed because he could not get cleared by the doctors to lift weights, to shoot the basketball, to dribble. He was basically told not to do anything with that shoulder. And he wasn't cleared to do anything until right before the exhibition season began, which put him, again, way behind everyone else as far as helping develop on this Cavalier team. But you could see, once he started to get into shape, 
once he started to play basketball and get used to the rigors of the NBA, you could see what he could contribute to this team. He is an outstanding outside shooter. He does have a good low post game. His basketball IQ may not be where it needs to be right now, but he's 20 years old. His upside is tremendous. They're going to put him on a weight training seminar this summer. He's going to be able to go compete in the summer leagues in in Las Vegas and in Orlando. That will help him out tremendously. And they're going to put him on a regimen that will get him in shape and ready for next year's NBA season. This is a very important summer for Anthony Bennett, especially after what he found out one season in the NBA is like. It's a business. Uh, that's the most important thing. You know, it's a business. Um, things can go right one day, the next day can go, you know, I wouldn't say wrong, but um, you just got to stay on top of your game. Um, always in the gym, you know, just, just keep working. I'm encouraged for sure. Um, you know, I learned a lot, um, you know, especially my teammates helping me out throughout the year, um, coaching staff too. So, you know, I just go in the summer um, work on my game. If Anthony Bennett can come back next year and be the contributor that everybody thinks he can be, that makes this Cavalier team tremendously better because they can put him at the small forward, leave Tristan Thompson at the power forward, and you've got Steve Hawes in the middle, and you've got a great front court. And then there's the little-known player who basically flew under the radar this year for the Cavaliers. That's Sergei Karasev out of Russia. He's grown up in a gym. His father was the coach of the Russian national team for years. He's been around the game of basketball. Left-handed shooter. Outstanding shooter. 6'7", 220. According to Mike Brown, he can't play a lick of defense. But he can shoot the basketball from anywhere on the floor. He will be another one that... The Summer League will help him out tremendously. He could really skyrocket, and he's young also. 19 years old, this kid is. And remember, this was the first time that he's lived full-time in the United States. So you've got to give this kid a break. And he flew under the radar. He played well with Canton in the Developmental League. And he came up and down like a yo-yo to the Cavaliers. Then he had some injury problems. But if this kid can develop as much as Anthony Bennett could during the summer, the Cavaliers' front court would be in good shape for the next five or six years. And then that raises the question, what about the guy in Miami? What about him coming back? There's something wrong with LeBron James in Miami right now. He almost looks like the player that left the Cavaliers at the end of the 2010 season. He looks disenchanted. It's not that he is not interested in winning another championship, but when you watch his body language and his facial expressions, it's like he has absolutely no help on this team. He almost had to wonder about his good friend Dwayne Wade a week ago, who missed a key game with the Indiana Pacers in Indiana and then played the very next night. A very important game against the Pacers, and, and Wade misses it. And, of course, everybody knows how I feel about Chris Bosh. I think he's just the third wheel on the big three. 
but they're just not meshing this year. And it's not so much that I think Indiana is going to come out of the playoffs. Don't get me wrong, out of the Eastern Conference. I still think Miami's the favorite to win the Eastern Conference and go defend their title. But there are other teams right now in the Eastern Conference that could be right up there to fight it out with Miami for Eastern Conference supremacy. I mean, let's take a look at the Eastern Conference playoffs right now. Indiana got the top seed with a 56-26 and 26 record. They're matching up against number eight, Atlanta. I think Indiana should win that series. Then come the Miami Heat. They ended up two games behind Indiana. They're taking on the Charlotte Bobcats. Now, I don't think there's any way Charlotte is going to win that series. But can they win a game or two? Yeah, I believe they can. The Toronto Raptors, who ended up with the number three seed. And who would have thought that, not only before the season began with Rudy Gay, but even after they traded Rudy Gay about six games into the year, that the Raptors would be the number three team in the Eastern Conference this year. They finished 48-34, and and they're taking on the Brooklyn Nets at 44-38. and The Nets have played improved basketball over the second half of the season. Now, does that mean they can beat Toronto? Yeah, I think they will. I think Brooklyn's going to win that series. And then you've got a very interesting matchup between the Chicago Bulls and the Washington Wizards. Washington getting back into the playoffs for the first time in years, and the Chicago Bulls defying everybody in the basketball world and making the playoffs again without Lou Aldang and without Derek Rose. They just keep on winning and winning and winning. But can they win this playoff series against the Washington Wizards? I have learned never to bet against the Chicago Bulls, and I'm not going to start now. I'm going to take the Chicago Bulls in this series. They've got the home court advantage. I'm going to take the Bulls in this series. Now, who can beat Miami? I don't think Chicago can, but I think the Nets can. I think the Nets and the Pacers can beat Miami in the Eastern Conference. Every other team will fall prey to the Heat. Now, if Miami doesn't make it out of the Eastern Conference, if they don't defend their title, I think the chance of LeBron leaving Miami this year are greater than if they win the championship again. And as I've told you, I've got some contacts in the Akron area. It's a well-known story. LeBron would like to come back to Cleveland, but is this the right time? It's also the rumor out there that LeBron is not really enamored with the idea of playing with Kyrie Irving. But yet, you could also put together a couple of trades, maybe Kyrie Irving to the Clippers for Chris Paul, whom LeBron would really like to play with but doesn't want to play in Los Angeles, or sending him to Boston for Rajon Rondo. Could you see a Rondo Waiters backcourt with LeBron James, Tristan Thompson, Anthony Bennett, and Steve Hawes up front? That would be a team that would catapult itself to the top of the Eastern Conference right away. Now, in the Western Conference on the NBA playoffs, here's a look at what's going on. The San Antonio Spurs with the best record in professional basketball, 62-20. and 20. They've got the number one seed out west. They're going to take on the Dallas Mavericks, the number eight seed. Number two, Oklahoma City will be taking on the number seven, Memphis Grizzlies. Then comes the Clippers. They'll be playing the Golden State Warriors. And the Houston Rockets are going to take on the Portland Trailblazers. 
Believe it or not, this is the first year ever in the NBA's history that no team from New York, Los Angeles, or Boston, primarily what they're saying is the Lakers, the Knicks, and the Celtics, have all three missed the playoffs. Because technically, Brooklyn's in New York, and the Clippers are in L.A. Crying out loud, they play in the same arena. Now, who's going to win out of the West? I think it comes down to San Antonio and Oklahoma City. I don't think there's any doubt those two are going to be playing in the Western Conference Finals. And who wins that? I'm going to wait to see what the injury situation is when that series comes about before I start talking about who's going to win between San Antonio and Oklahoma City. So that brings us to the draft. As I said on the top, the Cavaliers, at worst, will have the ninth pick. Well, here's a look at the lottery teams after the season ended last night. Milwaukee had the worst record. They were 15-67. and 67. Then comes Philadelphia, Orlando, Boston, Utah, the Los Angeles Lakers, Sacramento Kings, Detroit, Cleveland, New Orleans, Denver, the Knicks, Minnesota, and Phoenix. Now, the Cavaliers have a 1.7% chance of getting the number one pick. Milwaukee, of course, has the best chance, 25%. Philadelphia has the second best chance at 20%. Then Orlando at 15.5%. Now, who's going to be there? Well, when you look at the top five players coming out of college this year, you've got Andrew Wiggins and Joel Embrid from Kansas. Then today, of course, Jabari Parker from Duke announced that he was going to turn pro. Then you've got Julius Randle from Kentucky and Noah Venlay from Indiana. So you've got those top five players. Let's say everything goes according to Hoyle, and those are the top five that are, five that are taken. Then you've got my dream scenario, Doug McDermott coming to the Cavaliers. Or you could have Marcus Smart from Oklahoma City. You've got Jarnell Stokes from Tennessee. T.J. Warren from North Carolina State is another one. They're all small forwards. Get what I'm saying? The Cavaliers need a small forward. But it's all going to start before they ever get involved in the draft or anything. It is all going to start with two things. Who do they hire as GM? And do they keep Mike Brown or not? Those are the questions. Well, we do have a couple of days before the NBA playoffs begin, but already a free agent has been signed by the New York Knicks. So the very first move that Phil Jackson makes with his new team is to sign a player that he used to be the coach for. Lamar Odom, who was out of the league this past season, is now back in the league. Phil Jackson signed Odom, who helped the Lakers win the NBA title in 2009 and 2010 and was the sixth man of the year in 2011, which was Jackson's final season as coach. But Odom never captured that success again. Many people will tell you it's because he married a Kardashian, and I'm not going to argue with that whatsoever. He last played in the NBA with the Clippers a year ago 
averaging four points in about 20 minutes a game and appeared in two games for a team in Spain this season. He supposedly had some drug problems, went to rehab, and he has whipped those problems supposedly. Nonetheless, Phil Jackson's first move as president of the New York Knicks is to sign Lamar Odom. Now let's see what he does with Mike Woodson, the head coach. Rumor is he's going to bring in Steve Kerr as coach, and Derek Fisher, after the playoffs with Oklahoma City, will retire and join the front office staff of Phil Jackson as the director of player development. May 8th, four weeks from tonight, the NFL Draft finally will arrive in New York City. We will no longer have to worry about John Gruden's quarterback camp. We will no longer have to worry about mock drafts. We will no longer have to worry about who the media thinks each and every team will draft. We will no longer have to worry about... Will the Cleveland Browns be taking Johnny Manziel, Sammy Watkins, or Khalil Mack? And we will no longer have to worry about who the number one draft pick will be. But we still have another four weeks to go over that. And I might as well join the party and talk to you about whom I think are going to be at least the top four selections and get to the Cleveland Browns. Well, Mel Kuyper of ESPN came out with his mock draft 4.0 today. And it's fairly interesting when you look at the top four picks that he makes. The first pick belonging to Houston, then the St. Louis Rams, then the Jacksonville Jaguars, and the Cleveland Browns. So what does Mel Kuyper think? He thinks the number one pick in the draft by the Houston Texans will be Jadavian Clowney, and I've got absolutely no reason to argue with that pick. Now, Kuyper says that he thinks the Texans would like to put Clowney and J.J. Watt on the defensive line and just see how many offensive lines are going to be able to block both of them. Remember, Clowney has got the reputation that he takes plays off and didn't work hard last year. I think when this guy gets a paycheck, he'll work hard. 6'5", 266 pounds, defensive end. He's going to make that Houston Texans defense look even better. But then the Texans still have the question, who's going to be their quarterback? Believe me, there are enough quarterbacks of the same caliber in this draft. They'll be able to get one in the second or third round. Kuyper's got Greg Robinson, the offensive tackle from Auburn, going to the St. Louis Rams in the second pick. Now, Robinson is 6'5", 332 pounds, and they would like to tandem him up on their offensive line. Robinson is one of the better offensive linemen to enter the draft in years, and with the upside of an all-pro tackle, left tackle with the Rams, capable of neutralizing the best pass rushers, 
it is going to make the Rams' passing offense very, very tough. Who will go at number three to the Jacksonville Jaguars? I think it's Blake Bortles out of Central Florida. I don't think that the Jaguars can afford to bypass someone again like they did Tim Tebow a few years ago out of their own backyard. Bortles has got all the tools. He just needs time to develop them. And with Chad Henney at the helm of the Jaguars' offense and the way that he played last year, Bortles can sit back, watch the experienced veteran quarterback, and learn for the next year or two, and then be ready to move into the Jaguars' offensive system. Which moves us to the Cleveland Browns. I've got my opinions on who I'd like to see the Browns take. It's going to leave them with those three players gone, Bortles, Robinson, and Clowney. That will leave the Browns two of the three premier quarterbacks, Johnny Menzel and Teddy Bridgewater. It will also leave to them to pick Sammy Watkins, the wide receiver that Detroit destroyed the Ohio State defense in the bowl game this past year for Clemson, and Khalil Mack, who almost single-handedly brought the Ohio State Buckeyes to their knees offensively in the first game of this past college football season for the University of Buffalo out of the Mac. Definitely Khalil Mack is going to be an all-pro, and so is Sammy Watkins. But the Browns need a quarterback. My entire hope is the Browns do not take either one of Johnny Menzel or Teddy Bridgewater. My hope is at this spot in the order, number four, the Browns take Sammy Watkins. Can you imagine Watkins being paired up with Josh Gordon, Nate Burleson coming off the bench, the Hawkins kid coming in off the bench to play the slot? Then you've still got Benjamin, who's coming off the ACL injury. And then you still have Greg Little, whom they could even look at running back. He was a running back at North Carolina. Then with the 26th pick, you could go after your quarterback, or you can go after another receiver or a defensive player, a cornerback. And then don't forget, the Browns also have the fifth pick in the second round, which is the 35th overall, and they can go after the quarterback there. I'd like to see the Browns draft A.J. McCarron out of Alabama. Now, why would I like to see them draft A.J. McCarron out of Alabama in either the second or third round? Well, let me explain why. Let's look at some of the stats here based upon what A.J. McCarron did during his years at Alabama. He had 77 touchdown passes, only 15 interceptions on over 1,000 attempts, and he completed 67% of his passes. He was 34-2 and as a starter at Alabama. He went 291 consecutive passes without throwing an interception in his sophomore year. And he won two SEC titles, two national championships, and had his teams knocking at the door for a third one in his senior year. Yes, I like A.J. McCarron. I like A.J. McCarron better than I like Johnny Manziel or Teddy Bridgewater. Matter of fact, my top three quarterbacks are A.J. McCarron, number one, Zach Mettenberg 
from LSU, number two. And Aaron Murray, number three. I do like Derek Carr. I think he's an outstanding quarterback. He's going to take a little bit more development than I think A.J. McCarron will. I would have him number four. Those would be my top four quarterbacks, and that is my mock draft, at least through the first four picks in the NFL draft, which is coming up, as I said, in four weeks. And on May 1st, we're going to have a draft expert in here, and we're going to talk to them about the NFL draft coming up on May 8th. But also there's some other news out of the NFL, and it's very disturbing. I don't know what's going on with Deshaun Jackson. He evidently thinks that he is over and above everyone else, and it just seems like bad news is continually following this kid, even after Philadelphia released him and Washington signed him. An NFL Players Association arbitrator ruled yesterday that Jackson owes his former agent, Drew Rosenhaus, over $516,000 in unpaid loans and agent fees. Rand Getlin of Yahoo Sports reported that Rosenhaus had originally been seeking $778,000 for loans, interest, credit card charges, and insurance premiums. Black Sports Online reported that Rosenhaus loaned Jackson much of that money in 2011 when the wide receiver was spending recklessly and that Rosenhaus even allowed Jackson to use one of his credit cards. Though the ruling may put more of a strain on Jackson's reputation, he won't have any problem paying his debts because his contract with the Redskins includes $16 million in guaranteed money. Oh, and one other thing about his signing with the Washington Redskins. Deshaun Jackson was number 10 with Philadelphia. Robert Griffin III is number 10 with the Redskins. Griffin has already told Jackson he is not getting his number with the Washington Redskins. So Deshaun Jackson will have to look for another number as a member of the skin. This is really a disturbing story out of Minnesota and Division II Minnesota State out of Mankato. The football players there refused to practice for their former head coach on Wednesday, greeting his reinstatement by an arbitrator by demanding that the interim coach keep the top job. Todd Hoffner returned to campus for the first time since the arbitrator ruled he was fired unfairly last year in the wake of a child porn investigation that ultimately cleared him. It's a strange situation. Mavericks players came out for spring practice yesterday afternoon, but they were not in uniform. They read a statement saying they were unanimous in wanting to keep Aaron Keene as head coach of their team. According to the statement, the players all become outstanding community members, students, and athletes in the last year and half since the removal of Todd Hoffner, which safety Sam Thompson read aloud. Throughout this process, the team has been silent, but it's time the team's voice is heard. Thompson said the players want answers because this is their team. As a unit, Thompson said, we have decided not to practice because of the change-up in the coaching situation. Keane gave a brief statement saying the football program was bound by the arbitrator's ruling and that Hoffner is the head coach. Athletic Director Kevin Boisman 
said in a statement that players had shared their concerns. He said a meeting was scheduled for later on tonight between the players, Hoffner, Keene, and the rest of the coaching staff. Under interim coach Keene, Minnesota State finished 11-1 and advanced to the second round of the NCAA Division II football tournament. But they were also successful under Hoffner, 34-13 in his four seasons from 2008 to 2012. Now, why was Hoffner dismissed? Here's why. He was arrested in 2012 over images of his children on a university-issued cell phone. He was eventually cleared by the judge who described the images as innocent pictures of children acting playful after a bath. The school subsequently suspended, reassigned, and fired him for reasons that were not made public at the time. The arbitrator's report said Hoffner was accused of viewing porn on his work computer and letting his wife use the device, although neither charge was proven. Hofner then accepted the head coaching job at Minot State University in January, and the arbitrator's order that he be reinstated forced him to choose between the two schools. He said Tuesday he would go back to Mankato, saying it would help heal that injury. His supporters said the school overreacted in the wake of the sexual abuse scandal at Penn State, noting his high-profile arrest came just months after retired Penn State assistant football coach Jerry Sandusky was convicted of child sex abuse. The university said in a statement Tuesday that it welcomed Hofner back, and it also apologized to him. Certainly, they want to make sure there is no lawsuit pending by Hofner against the university. Well, as tonight's show winds down, let's move into Major League Baseball, where this afternoon... The Cleveland Indians fell to the Detroit Tigers 7-5, to splitting their series with the Tigers. Just a brief two-game series since Tuesday night's game was basically frozen out is the best way to put it. Last night they played in sub-40 degree temperatures, and the Indians won that ball game 3-2. to Yet this afternoon in a back-and-forth affair, the Indians fell to the Tigers by a final score of 7-5. to Let's take a look at the other final scores from this afternoon. Then we're going to flip over and take a look at the standings. First of all, the Philadelphia Phillies beat the Atlanta Braves this afternoon 1 to nothing. The Twins over the Blue Jays 7 to nothing, and the Rangers beat the Mariners by a final score of 8 to 6 in that ball game. Let's take a look at the standings now in Major League Baseball and we're going to start in the American League East where the up-to-date standings going into tonight's action have the New York Yankees leading the division with a 9-6 and record. Then come the Toronto Blue Jays and Baltimore Orioles, just a game and a game and a half behind. Tampa Bay and Boston are two and three games back, respectively. The Yankees, by the way, have won four in a row. And did you see the call last night in the Yankees-Cubs game? Very interesting. Catcher's interference, Jake, Jacoby Ellsbury... Had a runner at third, one out, and catcher's interference, he hit the catcher's glove on his swing, but he still grounded out to first base. Joe Girardi immediately came out, and on that play, which is unusual, but it is the rule, you get your choice. Either Ellsbury gets first base and the runner goes back to third, or 
They can take the out, and the run scores. Girardi took the run. The Yankees ended up winning the ball game. So you get your option on catcher's interference. Now elsewhere, in the American League Central, Detroit now back on top with a 7-5 and five mark. They're a half a game in front of the Chicago White Sox. Minnesota a game back. Then comes Cleveland at 7-8, and eight, a game and a half back. Kansas City 6-7 and seven in last place. And out west, in the AL West, the Oakland A's lead the division with a 10-5 and five mark. Then come the Texas Rangers at 9-7, and seven, but they've won three in a row. They're a game and a half back. The Angels are three games out at 7-8. and eight. Then come Seattle and Houston. In the National League, the team with the longest winning streak right now in the National League, it's the San Francisco Giants. And guess who? The New York Mets. Both teams have won three in a row. But out west, San Francisco leads the division with a 10-5 and five mark. Then comes the Los Angeles Dodgers, just a game back. San Diego, three games behind. Colorado, three and a half games back. And Arizona is in last place. They've won only four games this year. In the National League Central, the Milwaukee Brewers, who have won eight of their last ten, are 11-4. and four. They lead the division by two games over the St. Louis Cardinals, four over Pittsburgh, five over Cincinnati, and six and a half over the Chicago Cubs, who have lost four in a row, which is the longest losing streak in the National League right now. And in the National League East, it's Atlanta, again, winning that division. They're 10-5. and five. Washington, 9-6, and six, a game back. Then come the New York Mets, Philadelphia, and Miami. They round out the National League Eastern Division standing. So that's a look at Major League Baseball right now. And continuing on in the show, the NHL playoffs are continuing. They started last night. Let's take a look at the matchups in the first round. The Bruins are taking on the Detroit Red Wings. I think that's going to be a tough series, but I think the Boston Bruins are going to beat Detroit. Detroit's getting a little long in the tooth. The Tampa Bay Lightning will be taking on the Montreal Canadiens. I've got the Tampa Bay Lightning winning that series. The Canadiens have a tough time scoring. Pittsburgh is taking on Columbus. Boy, I wish the Blue Jackets would win that series, but I think Pittsburgh's just too much for the BJs. I'm going to take the Penguins in that series. And the Rangers are taking on the Philadelphia Flyers. I'm going to stick with the Flyers. I don't think the Rangers have got enough firepower to beat the Flyers. Now, out west, it's the Anaheim Ducks taking on the Dallas Stars. i got to go with Anaheim. And it is the Sharks taking on the Los Angeles Kings. I think Los Angeles is a good bet to win the whole thing. Take the Kings in, in five or six games in that one. The Colorado Avalanche are taking on the Wild. I've got Colorado winning that series easy. And this is going to be a big one. The St. Louis Blues and the Chicago Blackhawks. I think it's going to be the Blackhawks winning that series. Matter of fact, I have got Boston and Chicago in the finals, the Stanley Cup finals, which I think happened uh, in just about two months. But we'll get you that date coming up in just a little bit. Hey, finally on tonight's show, a very interesting article by Neil DeMoss, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but he wrote an article earlier this week on the website sportsonearth.com, and it basically was talking about how football and basketball professional teams will not allow you to bring food 
inside to their ball games, but yet Major League Baseball teams do. And he's talking primarily in the New York area when he's going over some of these prices, and especially with the average prices. I mean, when you look at some of the average prices that are going on right now, especially for a beer, a soft drink, or a hot dog, it's really interesting. Now, for a beer, the highest-priced beer is in the NBA, $7.41. The NHL, just $0.07 a little bit less, and about $0.50 less in the NFL, but a full dollar and a half for Major League Baseball. That's how less a beer costs at a baseball game. Now, a soft drink... Not as much. Four fifty in the NBA for a soft drink. The NHL charges four thirty nine. The average price for a soft drink at an NFL game four dollars and forty eight cents. But Major League Baseball four dollars and two cents, forty seven cents less than the NBA. And as far as a hot dog is concerned, believe it or not, the hot dog at a Major League Baseball stadium is the least expensive. $4.32 on the average at a baseball game. Now, at a football game, prepare to open your wallet. $5.07 is the average cost of just a plain old hot dog. But like I said, that's a 20% markup at the food banning sports. As I said, the NBA, NHL, and NFL. Now, given that the total concessions revenue for all 30 Major League Baseball teams is more than a half a billion dollars. What this means is that baseball is leaving anywhere from $50 million to $100 million on the table each year by not taking away your food when you come through the gates. Now, DeMoss goes into details here as some of the possible reasons why baseball could be less likely to crack down on outside food. He said the games take forever and are mostly outside in the summer heat, so it wouldn't be good public relations to have fan faintings from hunger or thirst during a game. At the same time, baseball teams have a lot more tickets to sell, more than $3 million per season in most cases, more than triple that of other sports leagues. And so they can less afford to say to fans, hey, if you don't like it, there's somebody else willing to take your seat. Now, that doesn't explain, though, why some teams that you would think wouldn't be in the position of turning away fans for any reason take a hard line on outside food. And DeMoss talks about the Memphis Grizzlies, the New York Islanders, and at the same time he also says that it's worth noting that several of the social media polls that he took noted that they didn't expect the laissez-faire attitude at their local Major League Baseball stadiums to last very long. That's going to do it for tonight's show. Thanks for joining us here this evening on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell, our producer, but most of all, our thanks to you for listening here this evening. Don't forget, coming up on Monday night, Mark Donahue and I with another edition of the Ohio Show. That will be at 9 o'clock Monday night when we talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. And we'll be back next week with another Ultimate Sports Talk Show at 7 o'clock. Until then, have a good weekend, everyone. It's getting warmer in the Midwest. Enjoy it. I'm Dave Mitchell. Until next week, good night, everybody.